Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Bienvenidos a la serie de sermones de Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse, urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now here's this week's sermon. Check it out. God bless you. Today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, and it is a time when we are invited to enter into the passion of Christ with our Lord. And so I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. And we're going to talk about the cross. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Something is terribly wrong with this world. You may have noticed. The world is lost, and it's obvious. As individuals, we see lostness everywhere. And as a species, we are helpless to do anything about it. That's what it said in Scripture that we read earlier today. So God intervened with the strangest of all strategies and instruments. Not with a magic wand, but with a cross. You see, we all have broken God's law. That's the whole point of Galatians. We are all, without, all who without Christ are under a curse, under the condemnation of God's just judgment. There are only three ways to deal with our situation. One is what Western civilization has chosen to do. It has chosen denial. We simply deny the fact that scream out to us that we're sinners. Humans aren't innately bad or selfish, modern thought goes. We are victims of our environment or the products of poor potty training. Much sin these days is simply psychologized. People aren't evil, they're just dysfunctional or have a personality disorder or are maladjusted. Our world thinks the solution to real evil often resides more with psychology than the power of God or salvation. Theodore Dalrymple, who worked for years as a doctor among prisoners, tells in almost comical accounts how this therapeutic mindset has distorted our system of sin and justice. Many non-Christian criminals see themselves as victims of circumstance beyond their control. They had no, they had no choice. One prisoner told Dr. Dalrymple that he'd become depressed after his trouble 
came upon him again. His trouble was breaking and entering into churches, stealing their valuables, and then burning them to the ground to destroy the evidence. The doctor wondered whether this trouble had come about because the prisoner had been forced in childhood to attend too many church services by a hypocritical, dysfunctional family. Not at all, he said. He said the reason he robbed churches and burned them to the ground was because in general churches were poorly secured, easy to break into, and contained valuable objects in silver. This man blamed his actions on lax church security. It's the church's fault. After all, they've got all that expensive stuff in there, and they don't lock it up well enough. It's not my fault I beat up this person. They appeared weak. They made me do it. It's not my fault I'm a bully. Some people won't fight back. What else am I to do but pound them into mulch? I stole. It's not my fault. It wasn't nailed down. If it's not nailed down, it's not my fault. I am a victim of circumstance. I hear this palaver all the time. And then, if you want this on steroids, try New Age religion, which reinforces such humanistic philosophies. One Swami said, the Hindu refuses to call you sinners. You are the children of God, the sharers of immortal bliss, holy and perfect beings, divinities on earth. Now, apparently, it's a sin to call anyone a sinner. It's to libel human nature. I'm sorry if I've offended any gods this morning. Humanism and New Age religion say that we are good or we are gods. But this flies in the face of reality. The facts that a screen that we are anything but. I've got news for you. Good people and gods do not create genocide after genocide. War after war. Pedophilia, stealing, lying, racism. If we were good, we don't need cops, we don't need armies, we don't need prisons, we don't need ADT security systems. If we're good, there's a whole lot of wasted time and energy by a lot of people. A second way of dealing with our sin is through self-atonement. By the way, that's what Galatians is attacking, is self-atonement. Salvation by works, by the law. We try to save ourselves with our own good works. Surely, we say, there must be something we can do to undo our moral failures and sin, make up for them. Surely, we can make amends. Years ago, Albert Speer, who was one of the engineers of the Holocaust and Nazi war criminal, was interviewed by Good Morning America. The interviewer, quoting some of Speer's writings, said, You have said the, the guilt, that guilt can never be forgiven or should be. You still feel that way? Spears said, I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime, and I cannot get rid of it. The interviewer pressed on, you really don't think you'll ever be able to clear your conscience. Spear replied, despite all of my sorrow and warnings in my writings and decades served in prison in order to make amends, I can't make up for what I did According to scripture, this is true. His sorrow, his writings, his warnings, his time in prison cannot make up for a war that killed 50 million people. Cannot make up for the Auschwitzes and the, the ovens in which 6 million Jews were incinerated or gassed. And 4 million other undesirables were killed too. 
He cannot make up for the pain that he and Hitler and others inflicted on the world. We cannot undo the past. We cannot make it up to God or others. As one of my old mentors said, you cannot unscramble scrambled eggs. What's done is done and there's no undoing it. We owe a debt we cannot pay back as a species. We cannot undo it. We are cursed according to Paul. And we cannot uncurse ourselves. Which leads us to God's way of dealing with human evil. You see, God had a dilemma. As St. Anselm put it, sin is not rendering to God what is his due. Namely, the submission of our will to his, our life as creatures, to the rule of him who is creator. You see, we took away from God what is his, what he treasures most, namely us. All sin comes from that severance of a relationship with God. Once you get away from God, you're capable of anything. If we are to be forgiven, we must repay what we owe. But there's just one small problem. We can't. We can never repay the wasted years, can we? We can't go back and live them again. We can never repay intentionally or unintentionally the pain we have inflicted on ourselves and others. We can never go back and make up for the opportunities to glorify God that are now gone or the damage to ourselves, God's creation, or God himself. Our present good works cannot eliminate the debt we have incurred. Thus, we cannot save ourselves. Not now, not ever. We're in a mess. Only God can repay what is owed. But only humanity owes it. That's the gist of the problem. So what did God do? God solved the problem by becoming human, and paying the debt himself. Instead of inflicting upon us the judgment we deserve, God in Christ endured it in our place. Paul says on a cross, Jesus Christ became a curse for us. In fact, Paul says in another place in the Bible, he who knew no sin became our sin and died for us. Our sin was embraced by his son on a cross. God, through his Son, became one with us, one with our sin, one with our judgment, suffered, and took what we deserved. Now, for moderns, this is a problem. A lot of moderns have trouble with this. As one person put it, you know, are you telling me that because of our sins, God killed Jesus and then turned his back on him while he did it? That seems like divine child abuse to me. A lot of people feel that way. Let me say two things about this. First, Jesus didn't see the cross as his victimhood. In fact, Jesus didn't see himself as a victim. He was not coerced to the cross by anyone, including his father. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. The cross is Jesus' decision as much as it is his father's decision. The cross was Jesus' choice. It was his decision. In fact, the last week of his life, it said he set his face toward Jerusalem, and even the devil himself tried to talk him out of it through Peter. And Peter said, oh, no, 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 you mustn't suffer like this. This can't happen to you. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. He could not be talked out of it. We see the cross as a tragedy for Jesus. 
Jesus saw the cross as a destination, a culmination of why he came. Jesus was a man on a mission. Every step of the way, he knew what was coming. He chose what was coming. He prepared for what was coming. By the way, the first temptations in the desert early in Jesus' life was preparing Jesus for the cross. It was showing, it was helping Jesus learn to not take the easy way out. And it was at Gethsemane where he really came to terms with this. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' final preparations for the cross took place. There in Gethsemane, Jesus dies before he is crucified. In Gethsemane, he died to the instinct for self-preservation. In Gethsemane, he overcame his fear of pain. In Gethsemane, he died to the desire for revenge when mocked and tortured. It is in the garden where Jesus faces what is in his soul before he faces the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Pilate, and Roman soldiers. He goes to Gethsemane to get ready to die by dying to himself and his will. Not my will, but your will be done. That's where the real battle took place. When Pilate says to Christ, don't you know I have power over you? Jesus answers, nobody takes my life. I give it over freely. When did Jesus give it over freely? It was in Gethsemane. Pilate did not realize he was threatening to kill a man who was already dead. Jesus went through emotional and spiritual death long before a nail touched his body or a whip touched his body. After Gethsemane, nothing could stop Jesus from his mission because after a man is dead, other threats have little effect, don't you think? It's hard to intimidate a dead man with a threat of death. Jesus suffered, but he was not a helpless victim. From an earthly point of view, Jesus was assaulted by evil on the cross. But from a heavenly point of view, Jesus assaulted evil on the cross. Paul, and Paul writes that on the cross, Jesus made an open show of the powers and principalities. Isn't that interesting? Paul doesn't say that Satan and the demons of hell were humiliated when Jesus healed people or fed hungry people or did miracles or even did exorcisms. The powers and principalities suffered their greatest defeat when Jesus hung between heaven and earth on a slab of wood. While evil thought it was humili humiliating Jesus, Christ was humiliating evil, showing it up for what it was, overcoming evil even as it assaulted him. One writer stated that Jesus in some way was like a cosmic water filter operating on the cross that day. You know, how an oper you know how a water filter operates? You slap it on there, water comes in, the filter removes toxins and impurities and dirts, and it holds it, and out the other side comes pure water. That's what Jesus did. On the cross, hate was poured into Jesus. He took its impurities and love poured out on the other side. Disdain was poured onto Jesus. Forgiveness came out all over the people, torturing him and mocking him. Pain was heaped onto Jesus. Guess what? It came through Jesus and healing broke forth in all of the world. Despair was dumped on Jesus and faith and hope spewed forth. All Satan could throw at Jesus was absorbed, transformed, and came out as healing and grace and salvation. When Jesus was on the cross, he was detoxing the world. Hallelujah. 
Jesus overcame the evil of the cross. It was not the other way around. Let me get to point two. The second aspect we often miss about the cross and the debt that was paid is that we often see things only in an individualistic way. Jesus did not see it that way. Jesus saw what he was doing as cosmic and corporate. Let me explain. Let's say I'm the head of old British Petroleum. And due to poor management and shoddy work practices that have been permitted for years, one of our oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico blows up and hemorrhages millions of gallons of oil into the water. I know it sounds far-fetched, but just roll with me. The spill does untold damage. Besides the environmental damage to sea life, many businesses are affected. Fishermen lose their catch. Shrimpers lose their boats. Resorts lose the tourist trade to other places because who wants to hear their kids competing on the beach about who found the largest tarball? Billions are owed after this. For some reason, I, as the head of British Petroleum, am fired for incompetence. Who could imagine that? They replace me, Philip. <laughs> and in my place, they hire Patty Patterson as the new CEO of British Petroleum. She is qualified because she's managed children for years at Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church. Running British Petroleum will be a piece of cake for her by comparison. Patty is personally innocent of what happened to British Petroleum. She wasn't running the show when that oil well went kaboom. But if she takes on being the CEO of British Petroleum, innocent or not, personally responsible or not, she now has assumed responsibility to oversee and pay the debt British Petroleum has incurred. British Petroleum's problems and debt are now Patty's problem and debt because she has taken over. When Jesus came to this world, he became the CEO of two entities. He became Messiah, the Messiah of Israel. He was, as Israel's Messiah and new CEO, now responsible for what Israel had done and had become and the debt Israel had run up. Their problem now became his problem because he was in charge. And Jesus came, even more importantly, not as just the Messiah. He came as the second Adam. He became the CEO of the human race incorporated. What humanity owed God now became Jesus' debt because Jesus had resumed responsibility for the human race and all it had done to itself, creation, and God. Jesus assumed our debt because he was reclaiming Israel as its Messiah and humanity as the second Adam. Where the first Adam had screwed up, God said, you're fired. I'm sending a second Adam to take over for you. He was taking back what had been forfeited to Satan. He was taking back this planet and all who lived on it and ever would live on it. And there on a cross, the second Adam would succeed where the first Adam failed. The second Adam would obey where the first Adam disobeyed. The second Adam would submit where the first Adam rebelled. And in doing so, he would pay the debt that was run up during the mismanagement by the first Adam and his ancestors. That's us. 
You see, Jesus took the debt because Jesus took charge. A new CEO was in town. Jesus died because he assumed our debt when he replaced old, failed management. You know, when our church bought this building and started renovating it, somebody had to sign the deed and the loan. You're looking at him. You're so welcome. <laughs> if we defaulted, whose name is on the deed? If we couldn't pay back the loan, whose name is on the deed? If, if we couldn't pay it back, you know what that would have meant for me? We would have had to have dipped into the vast Dalton wealth in order to pay all of this back. That would have been a problem because there is no vast Dalton wealth. Jesus, you see, you don't get to take over without taking responsibility for what you just took over. That's why Jesus had to pay the debt, because he was the second Adam. He was the Messiah. He was the one saying, I am coming back to fix this mess. I am now in charge. But before you can fix the mess, you must pay the debt that is owed. And he did that. You know, on the cross, like Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, it depicted in vivid imagery the torture and physical suffering Jesus went through with his trial and crucifixion. And it was terrible. But I've got to tell you, that is not what really troubled Jesus. In fact, it is not what really, really troubled the gospel writers. They spend very, very little time describing the physical agony Jesus went through. The hardest, deepest aspect of the cross for Jesus was his relationship with his father. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only this time, as this is the only time as recorded in Scripture that Jesus did not use the word Abba or Daddy in a prayer. Every other prayer in Scripture that you have Jesus praying, he always said Abba in that prayer. Beginning, ending, it was Daddy. Intimacy. But on the cross, he used a formal word for God indicating distance. Philip Yancey writes, he was quoting a psalm, of course, but he was also expressing a grave sense of estrangement. Now, I, I want to talk about this, too, when we're talking about divine child abuse. I need to say something here. I do not think Jesus was abandoned or forsaken by his father while he was on the cross. I think Jesus experienced aloneness, I think Jesus experienced abandonment. I think Jesus very much felt forsaken on that cross. But I don't believe for one moment the father turned his back on his son. Remember, the father and the son were both in agreement on this thing. They both cooked it up together. And both were suffering while Jesus was on the cross. I simply think that what Jesus experienced on the cross was because the pain from entering our sin and becoming one with it consumed him. Imagine if you've never sinned before. Imagine if you've never felt an ounce of shame in your life and suddenly your heart is flooded with it. Imagine if you've never felt guilt before. There was nothing to feel guilty about. And now you're drowning in it. The world's guilt flowing over you. Imagine feeling lost for the first time as you become one with humanity's lostness. 
Imagine feeling complete aloneness as you feel the world's separateness from God. I believe God the Father was right there at the cross when His Son was tortured and died, agonizing with His Son, not deserting Him. But Jesus could not see His Father or feel Him because everything He was going through shrouded the Father from Him. You know, I run into this often in counseling. When I'm dealing with clinically, deeply depressed people, I always need to tell them, while you are this depressed, you will not feel God. He's as close as your breath. He's as close as he ever was. His love has not changed. But your depression, your pain, your numbness screams louder than God's whispers. You will feel God forsaken. But trust me, you are anything but God forsaken. Hallelujah. Just because there are clouds doesn't mean the sun stopped shining. God was there when Jesus died. That's why Jesus could say at the end of his life, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You don't talk to someone you think is not there and is not listening. You do not commit your spirit to someone you think has forsaken you. He was there. Jesus knew the Father was there despite the clouds. God chose to deal with human evil on a cross with his son on it. Again, he could have turned us all into zombies and got, got obedience. Apparently he did. No, I mean, uh, just a few. Anyway, he could, have, he could have killed us all. He could have sent legions of angels. He could have held a gun to our heads and send, had an angel, angel standing right there and say, you, you, you do something wrong, this angel's going to take care of you. Instead, he chose suffering over coercion. Love over might. Grace over power. He offered by faith an incredible trade. He became our sin so we could become his righteousness. He took our wrath, wrath we so richly deserved, so that we could receive his love and his grace and forgiveness. He descended into our hell so that we could be with him when heaven comes to this world. He took our death so we could experience his life. He experienced our separation from God so we could be one with Him forever. And here's the great part of the deal. He offers all of this freely through the simple act of taking by faith His salvation instead of trying to save ourselves or deny our evil. No wonder Paul said, what do we do if we ignore so great a salvation? Hallelujah. 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 God's Son submitted Himself to the worst of this fallen world in order to redeem it. Like I said before, God does not solve human evil with a magic wand or with legions of angels or guns or knives. He solves it with a cross. No more can we, if we truly understand the cross, ask, where is God when I suffer? No more can we accuse God of not caring. The cross reveals the extent to which God is with us. You know, the irony, there's a little small irony here, is that at Christmas we go, Emmanuel, God with us. God came to this world. And it's true. God came to be with us. But you know when God really, really came to be with us? It was on a cross. That's when he was really, really with us. One with us in every way. Philip Yancey tells one of my favorite stories. His wife Janet worked at a nursing home in Chicago. 
And once a week, they would have Bible study with the Christians in that home. And an Alzheimer's patient named Betsy faithfully attended, led there by a staff worker, and she would just sit through the hour. Betsy was a pleasant, had a pleasant personality. But every week, Janet introduced herself. Betsy met Janet for the first time, week after week after week. When other people in the group, uh, you know, would, would, would say something, Betsy looked distantly outward. Mostly she sat quiet, vacant-eyed, enjoying the change of scenery from her room, but comprehending nothing of the discussion going on around her. After a few weeks, Janet learned that Betsy had retained, despite everything, the ability to read. On a good day, she could read a passage straight through in a clear, strong voice, and so Janet began calling on her each week to read a hymn. One Friday, the senior citizens who prefer, prefer older hymns they remember from childhood selected the old rugged cross and asked Betsy to read it. On a hill far away stands an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, Betsy began, and then she stopped. She suddenly got agitated. I can't go on, she said. It's too sad. It's too sad. Some of the seniors gasped. Others stared at her, dumbfounded. In years of living at the home, not once had Betsy shown the ability to put words together meaningfully. This was the first sentence they had heard from her in years. Obviously, she had something left she understood. Janet calmed her. That's fine, Betsy. You don't have to keep reading if you don't want to. But after a pause, though, she started reading again and stopped at the same place. And a tear made a trail down her cheek. I can't go on. It's too sad, she said, not remembering that she had said this just two minutes ago. And then she did it a third time. And again, the people in that room reacted with sudden shock. When the meeting drew to a close, other seniors gradually moved away, heading for the cafeteria or their rooms. They moved quietly, as if in church, glancing over their shoulders in awe of Betsy. Staff workers who had come to rearrange the furniture stopped in their tracks and stared. No one had ever seen Betsy in a state resembling lucidity. But something about the old rugged cross brought out something in Betsy. And finally, when Betsy seemed tranquil, Janet led her to the elevator to return to her room. And to her amazement, without any invitation from anywhere, in, in that elevator, Betsy began singing the hymn from memory. This woman who was crushed with Alzheimer's. The words came in breathy, chopped phrases, and she could barely carry the tune. But anyone could recognize the hymn, and Betsy started singing on a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame. New tears fell this time, but Betsy kept going, still from memory, gaining strength as she sang. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain, so I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay, I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. In her confusion, only two things were left to Betsy. She understood suffering, and she understood shame. 
And she remembered what the cross was about. Those words, by the way, sum up the human condition, don't they? The condition Betsy lived in every day of her life. People having to dress her and feed her. Not able to hold a conversation. Not able to even know where she was. Someone changing her adult diapers numerous times. She knew suffering, but even more, she knew shame. Who knows more suffering and shame than Betsy? For her, the answer was very simple. Jesus does. Jesus does. Because Jesus followed her suffering and shame and took it on a cross. And if he took it on a cross, why would he not show up at a nursing home in Betsy's heart, in Betsy's room? Feeling her deepest agonies? And in some inexplicable way, help her through them as he does us all? And as Easter celebrates, knowing one day he will deliver us from nursing homes and Alzheimer's and pain and suffering and shame. The cross proves what Betsy Ten Boom told her sister Corey in the hiding place just before she died. Remember that famous phrase? There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. There is no sin so terrible Jesus did not bear it on a cross and cannot forgive it now. There is no life so wasted Jesus did not die for it and that it can be redeemed. There is no pain so deep where he is not right in the middle of that pain and can, tra can, can transform it. More than ever, the resurrection, I mean, more than even the resurrection, the cross is the sign of God's unconquerable love it is the revelation of God's raging heart. The cross is God's answer to me when there are no other answers. When no miracle comes, do you trust circumstances or do you trust what you see on a cross? When death seems to triumph, do you believe in death or do you believe in the one who died to conquer death? When just, injustice lives on, when pain will not stop, you have a choice. You can look at Jesus on a cross and know he loves you more than you can imagine. Or you can believe what your eyes see. I look at the cross and know God's love is stronger than all the evil the world can throw at me, that his goodness is greater than the evil of this world or the evil in my heart because on the cross I get to see God's heart wide open because the crucifixion is where God's love was put on a cross and it could not be extinguished. It could not be stopped. It could not be conquered. Jesus' love Whip the snot out of evil on that cross. Jesus' heart took the heart out of Satan on that cross. Jesus' goodness overcame the filth of the world on that cross. He was triumphant. Yes, it hurt. Yes, he suffered. Yes, he went through hell for us. But I got news for you. He won. He won. He won. He won. This time I want the servers to come forward. We're going to partake of the communion. This is the symbol of our victory.